Welcome to Oncology Journal Club, COVID-19 and CLL, Implications for Treatment Decision-Making. Journal Club is developed in collaboration with That Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Pharmacyclics LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech Incorporated. In this podcast, Dr. Jennifer Wyock and Dr. Kerry Rogers discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting care for patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and we'll focus on three journal papers, Matto et al., Outcomes of COVID-19 in Patients with CLL, a Multicenter International Experience, from the journal Blood. Treon et al., the BTK inhibitor, ibrutinib, may protect against pulmonary injury in COVID-19 infected patients also from the journal Blood. And Shen et al., COVID-19 vaccine failure in chronic lymphocytic leukemia and monoclonal B lymphocytosis humoral and cellular immunity from the British Journal of Hematology. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash CLLCOVID1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Wyock is Professor of Hematology in the Department of Internal Medicine at The Ohio State University, Columbus. Dr. Rogers is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Hematology at The Ohio State University, Columbus. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Wyock will begin our discussion. Carrie, thank you for joining me in this Journal Club podcast today. I think we can both safely say that the COVID-19 pandemic has really influenced how we care for our patients with CLL. Today, we're going to talk about how we are taking care of these patients during the pandemic and take a look at a few papers um, that we both think are pretty significant in terms of how COVID-19 is impacting our treatment decisions. So let's start by looking at this paper from Mado and colleagues. This was a retrospective study. It was published in 2020, so very early in the pandemic. And I think kind of overrepresented some of the initial hotspots like in New York City and in Italy. Um, But it was a a study looking at patients throughout the entire world and was really one of our first large-scale studies that showed how the pandemic affected our patients with CLL. And they didn't do very well at this time. There was about a 90% hospitalization rate and actually about a 30% or even higher mortality rate, um, significantly higher for those who were hospitalized. And importantly, um, in this study, they didn't note a difference in outcomes for those who were on active treatment versus those on watch and wait. Um, One of the other things that the authors were kind of interested in at the time, and we'll talk about why later on in the podcast, is whether ibrutinib treatment actually influenced outcome. And they noted that it didn't, um, but also that most patients who had been taking ibrutinib prior to getting COVID stopped the drug once they got sick. Um, So Carrie, what did you think of this study and uh, how did it relate to your experience caring for patients at this time? 
Yeah, I think this was a super important study, particularly at that time, because it was really telling us something that um, I think I was observing, and I'm sure you were as well, um, that our patients with CLL got very sick from COVID-19 um, and had a high rate of hospitalization and mortality. And I think this was kind of expected um, after you see like influenza, you know, is something that is very severe in our patient population. And it was known like for a very long time that these uh, respiratory viruses particularly are uh, difficult for some patients with CLL to clear, even ones that didn't result in what physicians think are severe disease were really, you know, troubling for our patient population in terms of symptoms. So it's very unsurprising that a um, virus during this uh, global pandemic that was causing a lot of uh, morbidity and mortality, even in healthy adults, would be so difficult for our patients. And then, you know, just as a CLL doctor, you start thinking like, okay, you know, which of my patients are at higher risk, which things might be protective and think at a time when there's limited information, you know, what can we possibly do to um, keep our patients safer? And then especially when you know that uh, therapies for CLL, um, especially because they're uh, lymphocyte depleting and, you know, the newer ones are really more B cell directed, um, which of those are really going to be safest to use for people that need it during this pandemic? Um, and also which of my patients on treatment might have a higher risk of COVID-19 infection um, or bad outcomes if they were to get it. Um, so I think those are, you know, this really was kind of looking at that and then just the, or helping us understand that. And then just the um, number of patients who are on treatment uh, wasn't really sufficient to draw like really firm conclusions, I think between the different agents as much as we'd like to see as well. Um, just because this was a, a study reporting outcomes um, in a retrospective fashion, which of course is, a, is a, a good way to do this type of research at the time. Um, but it certainly was supporting that our patients on treatment were doing as well, which we weren't doing as well as you sort of know, but it was kind of hard to tell like were BTK inhibitors like ibrutinib or calibrutinib um, having the same kind of impact with poor COVID-19 outcomes as things like venetoclax or anti-CD20 monoclonals. Um, I don't know what you thought about that aspect. Yeah, I agree. I, I think if I remember correctly, the data we have from the monoclonal antibodies comes from the multiple sclerosis literature, where they had also noted early on that people who were on anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies were doing worse with COVID. And we all kind of extrapolated that to our experience with CLL. Um, and hopefully as we get larger studies, we'll actually be able to um, see what the influence of specific drug class is. I was just going to add, if that's okay, um, I thought this patient too, or sorry, this uh, study too was really difficult for our patients who, of course, a lot of CLL patients um, are very well educated. And uh, since they were stuck at home, like everybody else was, you know, trying to find out what this would mean for them. And, you know, we always counsel them about a higher um risk for bad outcomes with infection even before the pandemic. Um, so I think this was really uh, very difficult just emotionally for some of the patients when you're looking at these kind of um, higher mortality rates with this, uh, looking at, I think, a, a case fatality rate in some of the earlier cases of, you know, around 30 or 40% for, for CLL. And I actually thought the 
a kind of follow-up paper for this, looking at outcomes a little bit later uh, into the pandemic, which was uh, published with Dr. Roker as a first author, where it broke down um, the cohort of patients between February and April of 2020 to kind of like May of 2020 through February of 2021. And looking at the uh, case fatality rate was actually less, hospitalizations were less. Um, and I think it was actually down to about 20% compared to initial like 40% um, mortality from COVID-19. And that's, you know, really at a time before vaccines were widely available to a lot of people. Um, so I think that was just uh, kind of important too, to see that like, as we improve with COVID-19 and as it changes, it could be less devastating to our patients. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there was another article from Europe around that same time as the second paper that also included data. I think it was until about March of 2021, um, still showing high rate of hospitalizations. Their data actually still showed a really high case fatality rate. Um, I think, again, kind of overrepresented in some areas and maybe differences in access to specific therapies. Um, that time they did show that patients who were older and those that were on active treatment, it really did make a difference, um, which I think is something that we've seen in our patient population as well. You know, I think one of the things that these data were helpful for, at least initially, is kind of emphasizing even to our patients who were on watch and wait or newly diagnosed that they did have to be careful and wear a mask and stay out of crowds. Um, you know, you hate scaring people into making those sort of lifestyle adjustments, but I think we we all saw that our patients who were more careful around that time um, didn't get COVID and did very well. Now things are are really different. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we're lucky to have access to a lot of newer therapies for COVID-19 and people, um, I think are doing better and better. You know, obviously we work at the same institution, so have pretty similar experiences, but I don't think we ever saw case fatality rates as high as have been reported here. And, you know, as, even as we've seen surges with variants that have been uh, relatively more lethal, like the Delta variant, um, our patients tend to have done better and better as we have more treatments for them. We, you know, with the monoclonal antibodies and antiviral medicines for people who are not hospitalized. And, you know, I, I think a huge impact of steroids as well as antiviral medications for those um, that are hospitalized. Um, what are your thoughts, Carrie, on, on how those treatments have really changed what we've seen? No, I um, I think they really have. And one of the challenges is, um, you know, in a disease where most of the defects are like a lot of the immune defects are in humoral immunity or antibody formation, I think the availability of these therapeutic monoclonal antibodies for our CLL patients in particular were something that, again, we work at the same institution, so our experience is probably like similar because we've discussed this before. Um, but getting those kinds of uh, treatments with monoclonal antibodies are something we preferentially either uh, tried to get for our patients if they were able to get treatment locally or, rec or like locally here um, with us or recommended if they were um, people that live far enough away they couldn't travel here for treatment is that I think, uh, you know, at least my experience has been the therapeutic monoclonal antibodies for COVID-19 um, were really helpful for our CLL patients. And I haven't seen any actual data on that, like formal data, and I'd like to. The other thing that was really striking, I think, earlier in the pandemic that now we're just kind of like, okay, yes, this is happening. We know stuff. But when this started was like, shoot, we really got to think about this carefully. Some of the science of what goes into severe COVID-19, like which cytokines might be involved, what the inflammatory pathways are, like 
you know, what like some of those uh, like things are. And that's kind of like also what some of the interest was in continuing on BTK inhibitor therapy because of, you know, like we had tocilizumab, which was an anti-L6 and like some of the rationale for using um, some of the drugs that might block some of these inflammatory pathways for CLL rather than like anti-CD20 antibodies that really just kind of suppress B cells. I'm sure you have something to add on that. Yeah, I, I agree. And we're going to talk definitely in more detail about the BTK inhibitors, but um, I completely agree that for all of our CLL therapies, I, I feel like there's this risk benefit ratio um, when somebody is diagnosed with COVID-19, you know, risk of not being on their CLL therapy, of course, um, but then, you know, risk of continuation of the therapy and which parts of the immune system are we knocking out? And is that important for either uh, control of virus or, you know, on the other hand, does some of, do some of these things actually help when somebody gets sick? Yeah. And then um, I guess in risk benefit too, it's like uh, when you think about someone that really needs CLL treatment, we don't let people get like horribly sick from CLL and not give it, especially when we know that, at, you know, this far into the pandemic, it's hard to maintain this, but these non-pharmacologic measures such as wearing a mask and staying home really can help someone a lot. Um, and then when talking about the different therapies, which ones include an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody or like, should you include that with a BTK inhibitor? Um, you know, venetoclax is frequently prescribed with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. I certainly wouldn't, you know, tell someone who really needed that for like control of an autoimmune condition, um, like an autoimmune hemolytic that they shouldn't take an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, but for people with other options, you know, I personally was, you know, based on some of the the things you were mentioning with the class of drug, um, have been trying to avoid giving those to patients unless it was really necessary. And yeah. then um, not for the discussion at this moment, but we should definitely talk about vaccines later. Those really decrease antibody responses to vaccination, which I think is a reason that um, I've kind of continued to avoid that class of drug unless super necessary. Yep, I agree. Um, so why don't we move on to our second article? And this is um, where we're going to talk a little bit more about BTK inhibitors. So there was an interesting article in Blood by Trion and his colleagues in 2020, um, which suggested that Bruton's tyrosine kinase or BTK inhibitors, and specifically in this case, ibrutinib, might be protective to blood cancer patients with COVID-19. Um, so they have a large population of um, patients with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia who are already taking ibrutinib and presented a little case series of six patients who developed COVID-19 um, while taking their ibrutinib where the ibrutinib was continued. And um, compared to published data for patients with blood cancers, it seemed like these patients had very good outcomes. So five of the six of them didn't require any hospitalization. And, you know, I think the kind of most uh, interesting part of this was that the sixth patient was someone who was on reduced dose ibrutinib because of previous side effects. I think they were only on 140 milligrams of ibrutinib a day. Um, they ended up holding the drug and the patient immediately got worse um, in terms of oxygen status and then improved dramatically when the drug was increased, not just up to the 140 milligrams, but actually back up to the full dose. And you know, this was really an interesting observation because there has been previous laboratory data showing that, you know, one of the effects of BTK that we know of, or one of the effects of blocking BTK is you, you decrease cytokine production pretty significantly. 
And in a mirroring model of influenza, um, a group at Baylor had shown that you can protect against fatal lung injury from influenza by blocking BTK and, you know, suggesting that that might be a strategy in patients as well. And kind of going along with that, and um, there was a study of 19 patients that were hospitalized with severe COVID, some of whom were even on mechanical ventilation, that were treated with acalabrutinib off-label um, when they were diagnosed with COVID. And most of those patients, especially those who weren't on the ventilator already, showed clinical improvement and also decreased inflammatory markers after the acalabrutinib was administered. Um, unfortunately, though, there was a, a randomized study of acalabrutinib versus best supportive care, actually two studies that did not show a reduction in respiratory failure or death, although we don't really know much except for the top line data on that study. But you know, I think that those early experiences really have influenced how we manage those patients with COVID-19 and CLL, specifically those that are on BTK inhibitors. Um, so Carrie, what do you think of the study and did it change your practice? Yeah. So, you know, it's always hard when you have a collection of like so few patients to say, oh, we should just treat everybody like this now or, or you know, something like that when you are looking at what standards are for this, which is uh, kind of randomized studies, placebo controlled. Um, but I certainly think this 100% suggests that you don't have to stop BTK inhibitors because someone has COVID-19. Um, and, you know, I, I really do think that um, for patients on BTK inhibitors, um, it definitely led me to tell them to continue taking them, you know, either a brutinib or a calibrutinib um, if they were already on that treatment. And, you know, to recommend this as a treatment over other ones for people that needed to start treatment and had things they couldn't avoid in terms of COVID-19 risk of exposure. Like some people are able to stay home, especially, you know, um, when there's a lot of uh, case, uh, COVID case numbers and, you know, uh, especially prior to us having as much access to availability of therapies. And so some people have things where they can't stay home or have unavoidable exposures. And then, you know, I think uh, this really makes this a, a preferable class of drug for treatment of CLL. It also avoids the number of times you have to leave your home and go for visits compared to um, other drugs like infusional therapies or venetoclax, which has a ramp up scheme. Um, but it's really made me feel better about continuing this drug. Uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting is like, do you think that stopping a BTK inhibitor for a limited amount of time really makes that much impact immunologically too? Like I think some of these changes for people on long-term BTK inhibitor aren't things that reverse within 24 hours of stopping a BTK inhibitor. So if you, you know, if you hold it during an infection, I don't really think it reverses things to help people clear infection better. It's not going to you know, suddenly make their immune system like they'd never received it. And you might be reducing a benefit in terms of inflammation reduction for people who are at risk for severe COVID. I um, suspect you feel sort of similarly because we worked together, but I don't know if you had other points on that one. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And just, you know, echoing your thoughts that, you know, especially in times of surges of COVID, um, it did influence how I was treating patients. You know, if you had the option between a BTK inhibitor and something, especially that would involve an infusional therapy or an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, um, certainly giving increased weight to the BTK inhibitor for the reasons that you mentioned. And one thing, you know, I, I'm still not sure about is I think that 
there is the potential that BDK inhibitors played more of a role in the treatment of COVID before we started giving steroids to everybody. Because um, one thing I have not, not been completely sure of is how much additional benefit you get in terms of, um, you know, reduction in cytokines and reduction in inflammatory response um, over now that we give people dexamethasone when they're in the hospital. Certainly it might help people who are outpatient who haven't gotten to the point where they would qualify for steroids. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Like, because if you use the steroids to reduce this inflammation, is this really is key? I mean, we have only been giving steroids to people who were um, sick enough to be hospitalized after that British study, which of course was not, you know, in people with blood cancers. Um, I think it was kind of interesting, the one um, paper that was kind of the second look at the CLO group and how they did as a multi-center cohort study um, was showing that uh, treatments with steroids uh, did not actually have an overall survival benefit. Uh, and I'm trying to actually find this for you. I thought there was a decreased survival in people who got steroids and it was unclear to me if that's just because, um, yeah, so steroids were actually associated with an increased risk of death with a hazard ratio of um, 1.8 and it was adjusted for admission status to the hospital. But then, you know, you've also got people that received them that weren't admitted to the hospital and sicker people in general receiving steroids compared to not. So I think in our population, while I personally feel it's helped my patients and I do give it to anyone who meets criteria for it, um, uh, you know, um, for the dexamethasone, I think it's a little unclear if steroids might um, be overly immunosuppressive in some of our CLL patients. I agree. So let's um, move to our third topic, which is vaccines for COVID-19. So, you know, now that we have all these widely available vaccines, um, we've had the opportunity to see how our CLO patients are responding to them. So we know that with many vaccines, CLO patients don't mount as robust an immunologic um, or humoral uh, immunity as patients without CLL. And now we do have some papers in this group, as well as in blood cancer patients in general, that, that suggests that um, this may be the case as well. So um, Carrie, do you want to talk a little bit about that paper from Shen and colleagues? Um, yes, I absolutely do. Um, and I just wanted to say on a personal note, it's kind of funny because for our CLL patients, we know that a major cause of death is infection along with second cancers. So I spend a lot of time in my clinic, especially before the pandemic, telling people to get their cancer screenings and vaccines. Then a lot of our patients, you know, COVID-19 vaccines come out, they learn that they're not as effective in CLL patients. And they're like, why doesn't this vaccine work for us? I'm like, okay, first of all, it still works some, and we'll talk about that. And it's not worthless, don't worry. And, um, but also second of all, they're probably thinking like, oh, you've recommended I get vaccines for years and, and they don't work as well. And that was kind of funny too, because we've actually known that this is true for other vaccines like Pneumovax, Gingrix, like influenza vaccination. Um, so while some of our patients were like, what's wrong with these new COVID vaccines that they don't work for us? You're like, actually, it's all vaccines. Yes, I know I've been telling you to get them aggressively for the last several years. Um, so I thought uh, when we started getting data with some of the vaccines, um, looking at serologic response, which is, of course, antibody response, this data was exactly what I expected. And then you'll have to let me know if this is what you expected too. But it's really just showing decreased um, 
uh, rate of seroconversion or, or patients that form antibodies. So the paper by Shen et al was looking at 160 people with CLL and 21 with MDL, and this is actually in Australia. Um, so the more common vaccine given was actually the AstraZeneca vaccine in 85% of cases with the rest um, largely being mRNA vaccines. Um, so that matters a little bit when you're thinking about it. Um, but it really showed that after the two-dose um, series, you still got 45% of people with CLL that don't have detectable anti-spike protein antibodies. That's a very substantial number of people. Um, for MBL, which we all know is a pre-CL condition that has the same kind of risk of second cancers and infections, like severe infections, as untreated CLL, so you'd expect to have you know, similar kind of immune effects, it was 9.5%. And that is much higher than the general um, population of immunocompetent individuals where almost everybody will have detectable anti-spike protein. And so the paper's really nice because it goes over and looks at kind of like neutralizing um, um, antibodies, which of course was less in people with CLL, and then looked at some uh, risk factors for remaining seronegative or not having an antibody response, and found that um, hypogammaglobulinemia, including an isolated low IgM level, which is very common in CLL, as well as receipt of CLL treatment currently or within the last 12 months, were um, very much associated with poor uh, serologic response to vaccine or not having those um, antibodies. Um, the other thing that was kind of neat about this paper, which I appreciated, and I keep telling my patients, is that antibodies aren't everything. So we all think, you know, from available data and kind of data with other vaccines that high levels of anti-spike protein antibodies are what keep you from getting any symptomatic infection. So if they block the viral particles, you don't get, you know, a symptomatic COVID-19 infection or any infection. Um, but there's still, you know, um, possibility of things like T cell responses, which might be enough to reduce your risk of hospitalization or death. So it could be that, you know, lack of a robust serologic response isn't enough to keep people from getting COVID total, but these vaccines still could greatly be reducing people's chances of ending up in the ICU or, you know, of, of dying from COVID. And the, the rates of T cell response, I think were around 80% in this group. So that, that is much, much better than the serologic response. I don't know what you've been saying to your patients or what your discussion was. Yeah, I agree. I agree with what you say. Um, you know, I think the T cell data is a little bit conflicting because there have been other um, groups that have also looked at T cell responses and found them to be more highly correlated with the B cell response, which is disappointing. Um, and I think I think we just in general need a little bit more data on the T cell response and how that really. Um, plays into clinically significant disease. And of course, you know, most importantly, risk of hospitalization and death from COVID. Um, I think the other thing that remains a big question is, you know, now we have much more data on antibody titers and antibody levels. And you know, certainly if people don't have any antibody generation, that's not great for their immunity. Um, but I think more data on the correlation with an actual level of antibody and risk of clinically significant disease, I think will be really helpful for our CLL patients. Yeah, and I'd love to know, see that. Yeah. And so there's been um, some other data in blood cancer patients in general, um, which also kind of confirmed these data. You know, there's a large study that the LLS actually ran um, where they uh, went direct to patients. And after the patients got their vaccinations, they mailed a blood sample. And in a central lab, they were able to look at antibody responses. And pretty similarly, although in this case, almost everybody was um, 
given an mRNA vaccine, um, about two thirds of patients with CLL had an antibody response, which dropped to about 10 to 15% for patients who were taking BTK inhibitors. And I think about 0% for patients who were receiving an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. So pretty convincing data that the therapies that we use do influence responses to vaccines. One of the things that I've gotten asked a lot is whether it would help for people to hold their treatment when around the time that they're going to get a vaccine, which conceptually makes a lot of sense. But I think, unfortunately, we don't have really any knowledge of how long you would hold it or how you would actually um, logistically do that. Have you been recommending that to anybody? No. Well, so I did go to a, a really interesting talk that has nothing to do with the, with blood cancer. I was looking at rheumatologic, like people with rheumatologic disease and holding um, uh, things like uh, steroids or what steroid dose kind of limited responses, but none. And, and so there was actually some information on how long to hold or how much steroids were um, kind of like a risk factor for not responding. But I think with our CLL drugs, I've seen nothing that holding these is beneficial. And then also you have people with an underlying immune condition where you have even in treatment naive patients, you know, that have never, you know, received any of these therapies that, you know, people don't make good antibody responses. So I find it hard to believe that holding one of our drugs for two weeks is going to do it. I really don't advise people to be off therapy for a long time. Um, I think, you know, from what I've seen with the anti-CD20s, even if you hold it for a little bit, you've got six months to a year before you can make robust antibody responses. Um, so I think kind of a, a better strategy would be for people who are planned to complete therapy or plan to complete an anti-CD20 um, to revaccinate them after completion of that, like down the road, but to vaccinate them now without holding therapy to see if they can get some benefit in terms of these other um, cellular responses, um, especially you know, the vaccines have been quite safe. So I don't see any reason to, and, you know, we now have a lot of information on giving multiple doses of these vaccines. I see no reason to hold uh, treatment for vaccination when I don't know that it's going to help or to avoid vaccinating someone during treatment when they might derive a benefit. Yep. Um, and one of the things that has been, I think, a real game changer for our patients recently is the introduction of Tixagevimab, Silgavimab, or Evusheld, which I think we'll call it Evusheld or the monoclonal antibodies used for prophylaxis to be a little bit easier. Um, but I think that, you know, this preparation was emergency use authorized in December of 2021. Um, and it started becoming available in January, 2022. And we just saw the first published data in patients with who are immunocompromised showing a significant reduction reduction in the rates of symptomatic COVID for patients who had received Evusheld. So how are you using this one in your clinical practice, Carrie? Yeah, so um, I really like this prophylactic, um, like kind of dual monoclonal antibody treatment because I think um, this replaces the thing that you know isn't working well with vaccination. So I think this is best for people that have been vaccinated. And if you don't, you know, certainly people without antibodies after vaccination, but even those with antibodies that might not have had a robust antibody response, um, because this was really a product that I think is best designed for people that don't get good antibody responses from vaccines to kind of replace what they're not going to make with the vaccine. Um, so this, of course, is not just uh, people with CLL, but, you know, recipients of solid organ transplant and people with rheumatologic disease and so on. Um, so I just think it's very exciting when you have people that 
um, kind of feel devastated they haven't had an antibody response and you can offer them something that you know has a risk reduction, the safety uh, of this seems excellent. Um, so I think this is actually just an outstanding um, thing to offer people with CLL and I've offered it to um, I want to say everybody. <laughs> so, um, and especially too, like I was saying earlier, the emotional impact for someone living with CL that knows what a high mortality they have. I think if this is going to reduce people's risk enough that they feel a little safer having some interactions after two years, you really have to have some interactions with people to keep your sanity. I'm not saying um, go out and socialize with a whole bunch of people, uh, but you know, like uh, to to do some things that are important. Um, I think the people who really I felt um, I've strongly recommended this for our, you know, people who have other risk factors for severe COVID, who have had a lot of CLA treatment, who are on treatment, who I know don't have an antibody response. Um, you know, I've even had some people who had COVID-19 and had no antibody response and were hospitalized for it. I think this would benefit them. Um, I do have some younger fit patients, some that have never had, uh, you know, a treatment for CLL, some that are vaccinated had uh, what I would think most people would call mild COVID-19, where they never even considered going to the hospital for it. That that aren't interested in this. And I think, you know, that's probably okay. And while I, I would offer this to them as reinfection is common, I think the biggest benefit is in our highest risk patients. I don't know who you're offering it to. Yeah, I, I am the same. I pretty much offer it to everybody that I see. And I, I think that pretty much anybody with CML, 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 CLL could derive benefit from this um, just with the underlying immunosuppression, even if they're not on therapy. But yeah, I think it's just been so wonderful to be able to give people who have been scared to leave their houses, scared to even see their families um, and scared to travel to do things that they otherwise would really want to do this opportunity to be more fully protected protective and really, um, to really, you know, get out and do some normal activities. And hopefully, uh, this, these antibodies will stay relevant in the face of, um, evolving variants for a while so that people can continue to drive benefit from them. Oh yeah. I keep getting asked like, so I get another shot in six months. So I just get that every six months. Should I get this again in six months? Cause the, you know, the, um, information, um, for the prophylactic monoclonal antibody uh, combination is that it, you know, works for six months. I'm like, okay, well, one, I think we're still figuring out exactly how long it lasts for. And two, I think, you know, some of the relevant questions about how much COVID is circulating and if the variants in six months will still be covered by this, we need to know that before we recommend uh, repeated dosing. Um, but for right now, I think it's been great for my patients. And just to be clear, I don't recommend they get Evashield and go to a crowded bar with a bunch of people they don't know. <laughs> so I still recommend, you know, like, wearing a mask in public, you know, like, uh, yeah, things, thinking out your activities kind of more than probably healthy 20 year olds are doing at this point. Um, but you know, we all know how important it is to be able to travel, to do some things and, you know, uh, go out, see your friends. And I think this additional risk, risk reduction is absolutely worth it. And I've also gotten zero complaints about it. Yep. Me, me neither. The injection site is the only complaint. Yes. Well, I think we're getting to about the end of our time. Um, thank you so much again, Carrie, for joining me in this great discussion. Um, so just to summarize, we talked a little bit about um, the impact of COVID-19 on patients with CLL, the higher risk of morbidity and mortality with COVID-19, um, which I think has been mitigated somewhat by the currently available therapeutics. 
you know, we discussed BTK inhibitors and whether these might be helpful um, in either treatment of patients who have COVID or probably more um, importantly for our patients who are already taking BTK inhibitors, that it's not something that needs to be stopped if people do develop COVID-19. And finally, unfortunately, our patients with CLL don't always mount great antibody responses to vaccination, but we all recommend vaccination uh, using the CDC's recommendations for people who are immunocompromised. Um, and then the monoclonal antibody preparation that is used for prophylaxis now being of significant benefit to our CLL patients. Thanks again for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash COVID one Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.